You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. This is A.P. Weber. It's good to have you with me. In this episode, we're continuing the adventures of Halfkin brothers Ven and Darl with The Seed of the Fay Tree, Chapter 2. We picked up their adventure, where we left off at the end of Cascade Rock, as the brothers and their new ally, Adracia, returned to the frontier town with their treasure from the Temple of Raywin. That night, they lost much of their loot to repay Darl's debt. An unfriendly new sheriff was revealed, and Darl's leg wound turned out to be more dangerous than they had previously thought. But treasure remains out in the perilous Valley of the Gods. The brothers will soon need to return to the wilderness in order to collect it, if Darl survives his injury. He will. I just wanted you to, you know, sit in that tension for a little bit. Before we get started, I'd like to let you know that there is a lot more of this type of storytelling at apweber.com. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R.com. You'll find more audio fiction along with my original comics, Iron Grip, a sci-fi adventure, and Green Man, a historical fantasy. Please check it out, apweber.com. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Seed of the Fay Tree. Chapter 2. The poison in the bolt prolonged Darl's recovery, but Lizzie knew her craft well, and by the time Autumn threw her harlequin quilt over the trees in the western landscape, below the fall, Darl was ambling again. It was agreed that they got lucky with such a short excursion to Raywin's temple, and future expeditions would likely take much longer. If they ventured out into the Valley of the Gods too soon, they might find themselves troubled by freezing temperatures and impassable snowdrifts. No, it would be best to wait till the spring and Darl's full recovery. When the landscape out west began to hint at green again, and the sweet scent of buds graced the air, Darl took to pacing like a caged lion, limping no longer. He had wintered on the water in the cove, where the halfkin had pitched in to construct a small house for him upon a raft in compliance with the terms of his exile. Darl rather liked his accommodations and often entertained guests, halfkin and townsfolk alike. They'd drink ale and gamble at cards or dice late into the night before paddling the short stretch back to the dock. These parties became so frequent that a rope was run to the raft from the dam so people could ferry themselves across easily. Many townsfolk, the majority of whom were not invited to Darl's parties and would not attend if they had been, viewed this development as a miscarriage of justice and an unsettling allowance on behalf of the Hafkin outsiders. They would make harsh sounds in the backs of their throats and shake their heads at the sight of the makeshift ferry, all the while muttering to each other about how the harbor front boulevard just wasn't what it used to be. Before long, Darl himself was using the ferry to wander the sloping streets of Cascade Rock 
visiting friends and taverns. Often enough, Sheriff Huxley would spy him in the street and escort him home without ceremony. He had no trouble finding one-time deputies from amongst the drunken tavern patrons to assist him in cajoling the large halfkin to his home. At last, the sheriff cut the fairy's rope and threatened to throw Darl into stocks in the winter cold if he left the raft again. Then Char and the other halfkin urged Darl to comply, and for the most part, he did. Thus, on a crisp spring morning, Ven found his brother walking the length of his raft with even more than his characteristic agitation. I'm going mad, Darl told his brother, not even offering him a hand out of the dinghy. I think it's time. The snow's receding to the whitecaps. We should get out there again. Barely, Ven said, hoisting himself up onto the deck. It's almost noon and there's still a chill in the air. Bill tells me it's not unheard of for them to get some spring snow here. Don't listen to Bill, Darl said. Spring's coming on strong. I can feel it. Ven regarded his brother with pity momentarily. He said, All right, I'll start making preparations, but we're not going out there without adequate supplies again. Darl scowled. Well, how long is that going to take? I don't know. I've got some other things to take care of, too. What other things? The band. There's a lot to do. Mom can't handle it all on her own. She didn't say anything to me. I saw her yesterday. She didn't say anything to me, either. Then let her handle it. Look. You're not out there like I am. We've barely got a foothold in this place. But if we can make ourselves useful, Cascade Rock could be our home. We wouldn't have to worry about Baron Redway at all. We could be settled. Settled? Darl said, like the word put a bitter taste in his mouth. Why do you want that? Ben closed his eyes and took in a deep breath. I know you're getting restless, Darl, but... Darl hammered his fist against the sturdy timber frame of his house. Damn right I'm getting restless. I'm broke. What do you mean you're broke? You have no expenses. I gotta eat, don't I? You can't have eaten your way through your cut of the Raywin loot. Darl scratched the inside of his ear. I might have made some bad, uh, investments. You mean gambling? What's the difference? So, you're less broke and more in debt. To whom? A few people. How many? Uh... Darl squinted at the sky and began consecutively tapping his thumb against his fingers. He said abruptly, A lot of people. As long as you haven't broken the mill again, we have time to prepare. Funny you should say that. Why? Darl made a face. It's just some of the people I owe money to. The Foresters? Darl shrugged. Damn it, Darl. You know Huxley is looking for any excuse to put his boot in our asses. He's polite to me, Darl said with a grim smile. If you say so, not everyone in the band is as imposing as you. Oh, here we go. 
Here come the insults. Darl the brute. Darl the big dumb halfwit. Ven sighed. That's what you were about to say, wasn't it? Darl persisted. No. Sure? Maybe I can talk to the Foresters. Pay down your debt with my, you know, talent. The tree thing? Darl said after several laborious seconds. Yeah, why does everyone say it like that? Because of what happened last time. You weren't even around last time. So the time before that, and the time before that. It's not without risks, Ven admitted. But it's part of the gift my Hafkin blood affords me. Getting stoned out of your mind on tree fungus is not a gift, brother. Ven's exhale was heavy with defeat. Fine. I was just trying to help. If you'll excuse me, I have somewhere else I need to be. You know how you can help, Darl said, grinning and smacking his fist against his palm. You can get back out there with me. Come on, then. It's time for another expedition into the Valley of the Gods. Ven left his brothers and strolled purposefully down the boardwalk toward the dam's capstone lane. He turned south and walked along the capstones past the fish market bobbing in the water on his left and the timber shops and houses hanging over the side of the dam on his right until he came to the lonely Leviathan Tavern. The tavern floated in the cove water like many other establishments up here in the heights of Cascade Rock. A wide, sturdy-looking plank bridge spanned the narrow gap between the capstones and the tavern's raft foundation. He glanced over his shoulder, idly relieved that his meeting was here, on the waterside, and not in one of those structures perched perilously over the falls. He hated looking out the window in those hanging timber houses, seeing so much sky over the distant landscape below. The very thought made him shiver. Inside, the lonely Leviathan Tavern had just opened up its shutters for the first time this season, finally airing out the smoky must of the winter's fires. Sunlight fell in shafts between the rough-hewn beams and pooled on the plankwood floor. A cool breeze snuck around the interior and flicked at the flames in the stone hearth at the center of the tavern. Ven saw the halfkin he'd promised to meet seated near the hearth, Kel Riddlemoot hunched over his pint as if trying to keep a low profile in a relatively uncrowded tavern. He was a young halfkin with doe-black eyes and ears big enough to look like a caricature's drawing. Ven knew him to be an eager young man, almost to the point of ambition. Riddlemoot, more than any of the youths, volunteered for every halfkin enterprise he could, whether it involved day labor, herbology, griffs, or vending. For this reason, it surprised Ven that he'd be idle during the day. But then again, if he was asking to meet, perhaps he had come up with some enterprise of his own and was looking for support from the Hafkin elders. The thought made Ven proud of his band's industriousness. Oh there, Hafkin, Ven greeted Riddlemoot cheerfully. The youth set his huge, wet eyes on him, and Ven instantly knew this meeting was not about a new enterprise. What's wrong? 
Ben said, pulling out the stool across from him. Riddlemoot licked his lips. I did something. Sheriff Huxley's looking for me. Ben cursed. Tell me everything. It went like this. Jenny Greenhands had set up a stall for card readings. She gave a shopkeeper a reading, who paid her in a bank promissory note. Right, Ben recalled. Rutten used some of the loot to help set up the Bank of Cascade Rock. I believe a number of business leaders invested in it, too. Jenny complained to Riddlemoot about the note, not knowing what to do with it. But Riddlemoot saw the potential. He borrowed it from her and went to work forging duplicates. Before long, he was buying his mother's groceries with forged banknotes. Halfkin can't have accounts with the bank, Cal, Ben said. No wonder you were caught. But I didn't get caught, Riddlemoot insisted. Not for that, anyway. Riddlemoot told the grocer his employer would only pay him in promissory notes. He'd sign his wages over to the grocer in exchange for goods, and the grocer could keep the balance. If the grocer suspected anything, the tip bought his silence. Riddlemoot's forgeries were getting more convincing every day. So, when he heard about the death of the old hermit, Duncan the Derelict, he decided to try his hand at manufacturing a deed to his forest property. He felt confident in his work, but when he tried to sell a parcel to the foresters, he found that the old hermit had a niece in town who had sold off the entire estate ahead of him. Duncan the Derelict had a niece? Ben said. Who knew? No one, Riddlemoot said. Can you blame me? I suppose not. But you should have checked with my mother before you ran a scam like that. She would have assigned someone to do diligence. Never get overconfident. Lesson learned, Riddlemoot said, hand to heart. But Sheriff Huxley's looking for me now. I don't know what to do. Ven groaned. Damn it, Cal, he muttered. Look, we've been working our asses off, trying to keep our noses clean in this town. You know what will happen if Magistrate Retton has to turn us out. You know who's likely to come after us. Riddlemoot looked at the table. The Lord of Teeth. The Lord of Teeth, yes. He'd do a lot worse to you than Sheriff Huxley. Aw, oh, come on, Ven. I can't spend a week in the stocks. I can't spend a night in the stocks. I'll do you one better. How are you going to pay back the bank for all the promissory notes you forged? Because Huxley is a serious man. He knows his job, and I guarantee he's already been asking around about you. If his investigation leads him to your grocer, he'll sniff out that scam too. You've brought a lot of trouble down on the band, kid. I know. I'm sorry. I'll make it up to you. But I can't make it up to you if I'm in the stocks. I'll see what I can do, Ven said, scooting his seat back. You'd better stay out of sight until I can sort something out. Riddlemoot thanked him profusely and offered to buy him a drink. Ven declined and went to the door, but when his eyes adjusted to the light outside, he saw the sheriff's rangy figure striding purposefully through the capstone thoroughfare toward the lonely leviathan. and ducked back into the tavern. Sheriff's coming, he said to Riddlemoot's naked alarm. Stay calm. 
but don't leave by the front door. You want me to swim for it? Yes, but not back to the dam. Meet me at Darl's place. Tell him I sent you. When Huxley darkened the door, looking about with his customary wariness, Ven was sitting where Riddlemoot had been, sipping at his ale as if it were his own. Huxley made him and sauntered over. Ven? The sheriff greeted him. Sheriff Huxley? Ven replied. It was their custom to be terse with each other, although Ven suspected that Huxley reciprocated the begrudging respect he had for him. There was no great amount of affection between the two men. What can I do for you? You know I'm already inclined to kick you halfkin out of the city for all the trouble you've caused, said the sheriff. I do, said Ven, cheerfully. Just so we're clear, give up the riddle, moot boy, unless you sanctioned his little scheme. Scheme? Ven said, innocently raising his eyebrows. I know about the forgeries. I talked to the grocer between the third and fourth switchback. Oh, how's old Stefan doing? He's one of the few shopkeepers who will serve our kind. Hope he's not in any trouble. Afraid he is. And you know Redden made a decree concerning doing business with your band. Words. Doesn't change an unwelcoming disposition. Perhaps we'd feel more warmly toward your kind if we could trust you. Ven stared at the sheriff for a moment, then looked down. He took a steadying breath, then said, I can make things right with the bank and the timber mill. Oh, please. No, listen. Your promises are worthless to... Listen. It's not a promise. You'll see results, and it will cost you nothing. Huxley seemed to be chewing on his own words, deciding which to swallow and which to spit out. He said, Well, go on then. I can talk to the forest, get the saplings to grow faster or harden up the old growth. Huxley looked disappointed. He turned in his seat as if to stand. Bring me the boy by sundown or else... No, wait. This is real. You'll see results. It doesn't cost anything. Huxley stood, but did not leave. Results? When? It won't happen right away, but it will happen. And in the meantime, I can provide consulting services to the foresters. Help them select the best timber. Why do you take me for, boy? I'm not lying to you. This will. Huxley held up a hand. You can't solve this with another scam. You want people to trust you. Try being on the level for a change. This is on the level, Ven shouted, rising to his feet and leaning toward the tall man. Prove it. That's what I'm trying to say. I'll prove it. We Hafkin really can do things no one else can. We can help. Be of real service to Cascade Rock. Just let me prove it. Huxley stared at the halfkin, chewing his thoughts again. Fine. Prove it, then. Thank you. This doesn't square the boy with the bank, though, Ven. That money's got to be repaid. And, incidentally, your brother's gambling debts, too. No one actually believes he's good for it, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's greeted by a mob. 
next time he violates his exile. Darl and I are going back out. We'll get more treasure. If you're not killed out there, but fine. Only because I know you have no other prospects. But if I see that little snot Rillamoot, I'm putting him to hard labor paying back what he stole. Ven smirked. His back is not his strong suit. You'd be better off putting him to work in the bank. A cough of disgust escaped Huxley's throat. <laughs> right. Make it even easier for him to steal from us. I'll send word down to the Foresters. They'll be expecting you this afternoon. Let's see if a halfkin can have some motivation to do actual work for a change, or if you're all equally lazy. Ben let the insult lie and watched the sheriff leave. He looked out the open window toward Darl's houseboat. Two figures stood on the vessel's deck. So Kel had made it. Get inside, you twit, Ben thought. The Afkin camp, in a clearing outside the gates of Cascade Rock, looked more settled than Ven had ever seen it. But this was something of a deception. The barrel-top wagons were positioned in a circle, with their rear doors facing inward to create a little village, a little town square. But Ven knew this arrangement had as much to do with protection as it did with creating a communal space. All the wagons faced outward, so the band could quickly hitch them and scatter in different directions. Each family knew the regrouping plan by memory. Even the little ones could find their way to their people. Still, the grass had started to grow tall around the big wagon wheels, and frequent foot travel had carved well-trodden pathways from the road to the camp. Lizzie stood outside his mother's doorway, the sheen of her black horns catching the sun. They looked so beautiful on her, Ven thought, and instantly felt ashamed of that thought. It was an old reflex. He'd liked her since they were both children. But she had chosen Renfro Gormonger as her man, and Renfro was as good a man as they came. Was. He got himself stoned to death in a village far to the west, when a noblewoman decided she didn't like the way he had looked at her and he had dared claim innocence. While they were married, Lizzie and Renfro seemed so perfect together, so easy in each other's company, that Ven wouldn't allow himself any jealousy. Now, however, the notion that Ven might be to her what Renfro had once been seemed not only forbidden, but entirely impossible. Char stood in the doorway, listening to Lizzie, as she always did to the halfkin in her band when they brought their problems to her. She nodded with interest, but with little sympathy and no sense of concern. Ven knew this posture to be a cultivated one, a projection of confidence, as if no problem could bring her to fret. She looked up and nodded at her son, with a warmth visible only in her eyes. Lizzie glanced over her shoulder to see Ven approaching, acknowledged him with a smile that barely painted over the worry in her face. She continued her conversation with Char. What makes it so frustrating, Lizzie was saying, is that if they had just listened to me, the boy's arm would have knit back straight. But they blame you, Char said, to sum up the story. Of course they do, but I didn't break the boy's arm. One look at the father, though. Did you return the payment? Of course, but they went to the magistrate anyway, and I know he's sympathetic to us in his own way, but that's not really the problem, is it? 
Char nodded with understanding. It looks bad. You are made out to be a crackpot. You're worried the others will stop coming to you for healing. Lizzie looked down. The desperate ones will keep coming. But you know that what I really love is serving as a midwife. They'll think I'm too dangerous to trust anymore. Char stepped down from her doorway and embraced the younger woman. She towered over Lizzie, and the hug was all-encompassing. When they separated, Lizzie wiped her eyes and Char returned to her usual stoicism. Did you splint the arm? Ben said. He knew he was intruding, but this conversation seemed of a piece with every other problem he'd been asked to solve today. Lizzie blinked and swallowed. She gave him a patient look. No, he didn't need one, as long as they gave him the bone paste every day. Their doctors use splints for that kind of thing. Lizzie folded her arms. Splints are uncomfortable for little boys. Our way is better. But their way... Char gave him a curt shake of her head. Sorry, Ben muttered. Lizzie shrugged as if to say, it's nothing, but her arms remained crossed. She didn't look at him. Sorry, he said again. Lizzie's voice was weak and cracked at the edges. I just don't know why you take their side, Fen. She turned to leave, but stopped when Char softly called out to her. Thank you for coming to me with this, she said. I'll do what I can. Lizzie gave her a rueful smile and walked away. That will teach you to interrupt a conversation, Char said to her son when Lizzie was out of earshot. Come in. I have some tea steeping. Not the best way to win over the girl you're sweet on, Char said, then ignored the implication and poured the tea. I'm not saying we should stop being half-kin, he said. Just maybe we could fit in better. Char sat across the small, fold-down table in her wagon's cabin, with her tea cupped near her mouth. We know many tricks, she said, but that one we've never managed to pull off. She took a sip, then frowned at the table. He thought of Adracia, how she had convinced others she was regular folk and not a halfkin at all, despite the uncanny way she always smelled like blossoms in spring. She had hunted other halfkin on behalf of the Lord of Teeth. If Ven was looking for balance, that kind of life wasn't it. We need to at least pull back on the scams, he said. Char sighed. I haven't sanctioned any, but most of our people can't find work. The haul you took from the valley is all but gone. Since the bank was established, we can't seem to find anyone to loan it to anyway. Our people fear for the future, and they're bored. I wish I could be bored, Ben said, a bit too lamentably. Apparently, I've agreed to go help the foresters with the grove. The tree thing, Char said. Ben groaned. Yes, the tree thing. It's risky, Char said after a moment, gazing at her son as if taking the measure of him. But I have confidence in you. Well, at least there's that, Ven said. 
but I'm not exactly sure what I'm getting out of the arrangement. I was so intent on winning Huxley's confidence, that part of it never got resolved. Char took another sip. How about jobs? Ben raised his eyebrows questioningly at his mother. You'll talk to the trees, she said. Get the trees to do what the foresters want them to. But in exchange, you'll ask for positions for our people at the mill. Ben considered this. If all goes well, they'll have to hire more people anyway. I'll tell them it has to be our people. That's the carrot, Char said. Now what's the stick? A blight, maybe? She nodded. Make it subtle. The threat can't be too obvious. I wouldn't want to have to actually go through with it, Ben agreed. Char looked at him thoughtfully. Could you really do that? Blight the forest? No, Ben said, and then thought. Actually, I don't know. Well, don't, Char said with a wry smile. They sat in companionable silence for a bit until Char said, Shall we talk about Lizzie? Ben slouched over his cup. What's there to say? Maybe nothing. To me. Perhaps you should talk to her. She'll never look at me the way she looked at Renfro. Then find another woman to pine for. His mother had a blunt manner, but Ben knew her words were spoken with compassion. I wish it were that easy, Ben said, then stood and tossed the dregs of his cup out the door. I've got to get over to the mill. Ben watched the water wheel turn in the flow of the river, paddles creaking with strain. These regular folk sure could be ingenious when it came to this sort of thing. He liked the sound of water pouring in rushes and glops. It soothed him, the rhythm of it. The foresters were arguing amongst themselves just under the sound. They probably thought he couldn't hear them. He could. We don't need his help. But we can't tell him no. What if he, you know, we don't have five jobs to give to a bunch of half-kin layabouts. What if we tell him two jobs? It went on like this. The father and his two sons, all grown men with barrel chests and big, meaty, calloused hands. They were a physically imposing lot, especially when they carried their axes. Ben thought it strange. They feared him. The father came over, stooped a bit, and speaking in a slightly raised, non-threatening pitch, as if to a child, he said, We can take two of your people. What's the, uh, ritual involve? Ben smiled, making his own effort to appear non-threatening. Trade secret, I'm afraid. What do you need from us? Just a bit of grove where I can be undisturbed for a few hours. The father shrugged his brows at his sons, before saying, We can manage that. Ben dug into the earth around the roots of an oak until he found some silky, fungal tendrils. The regular folk, the foresters, would ignore this pale membrane, never considering that it might be more than what it appeared to be, a somewhat objectionable substance like the slime trail of a snail. But Ben knew that the fungus spread out from this tree, and indeed every tree, like a net undergirding all forests everywhere. 
He pulled up a thick strand, cutting it away from the rest of the silky ligaments on either end with his knife. It coiled in his palm, a translucent worm, a thing alien to the light of day. He sat back against the oak trunk between its roots. He rested his elbow on one raised knee, dangling the strand of fungus, turning it between thumb and forefinger, examining it for imperfections. It released a mineral scent when he pinched it, evocative of rain on soil. With a resolute frown and a sigh, then balled the string and put it in his mouth. The earthy, pungent taste of decayed organics caught in the back of his throat, and an acrid overtone contorted his face. He chewed twice and swallowed. He closed his eyes and rested his head against the bark. When Ven opened his eyes again, he found himself lying in the undergrowth, his heart racing and his spine tingling like he'd just pulled himself out of a nightmare. And in a sense, he had. But far from the relief of finding himself safe in bed, he came to with the dread and certain knowledge of imminent danger. He rolled on his side, pushed himself onto all fours, and vomited into a fern. I need to tell Mom. Warn the others, he thought. But there was something else, too. Right before the nightmare began, he had connected to the forest. He had connected to her. The Halfkin needed to know about her, too. Then collapsed again and endeavored to settle his breathing to let the nausea pass. No. There wasn't time for sickness. He had experienced something more wonderful than he ever imagined, and then it turned into something terrible and full of menace. He wasn't sure who she was, the woman of the forest, but he was certain about what came next, the thing that pulled him away from her into another vision. The man he saw then had stood before a copse of burning trees and he wore a pale crown formed of teeth. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Weep Bar. Music help from the incomparable Mackenzie Stubbard. Please consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. For more of this kind of storytelling, go to apweber.com. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R.com. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. 
It's the story where chaos rolls. <laughs>